Ladies and gentlemen, it is December the 1st, 1.02 p.m. here on the west coast of the United States. My name is Arthur Asadurian. This is the Apollo Gia Center weekly interviews. We do these on Thursdays. We bring in various experts, scholars, theologians, friends um, who share with us their expertise, their love for theology and God and the scriptures and Christianity and evangelism and apologetics and the list can go on. So I want to thank you guys for being here. I want to introduce my guest and bring him in, who's a very good and dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jason Matosian. Jason, how are you doing, brother? Oh, you're muted for some reason. Let's see. You muted yourself. We were just talking pre-live and everything was coming through, so. These things happen, ladies and gentlemen. This is live. Testing, test. Yes, there you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's okay. It happens. <laughs> Technology is weird, man. Yeah, I hear you. So, thanks for being uh, with us today. Glad to be here, uh, Jason. We're gonna quickly read through your uh, kind of educational career, and uh, and then we'll ask you for some wisdom uh, because uh, you've gone through it. You've been tested by the fire. And uh, so we want to glean from you on that. And then we'll jump into our subject and your research, your dissertation, uh, and uh, hopefully give some wisdom for us as Christians on how to live our lives uh, within the church, uh, how we deal with friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who we disagree with on very serious, important subjects, and how we can keep the balance and uh, the love, mutual respect in the midst of that. So um, let's jump into your uh, your education so you got a ba in political science from ucla uh is is that because you wanted to be a lawyer that is because i wanted to be a lawyer i actually started as a linguistics and philosophy student uh and then switched over to poli sci you have no right to make fun of philosophers um I, maybe that's why you make fun of philosophers i, think that, I was gonna say they, i have all they, the right in the world they hurt you <laughs> Yeah, uh, yep. and then and then you went on. You got your MDiv from um, from Talbot uh, School of Theology, and then you got a THM in New Testament from Talbot yep. as well, and then eventually got a PhD in Church History from Fuller Theological Seminary. Yep. Uh, so you've done political science, you've mm -hmm. done an MDiv, you've done New Testament studies, which includes quite a bit of history, and then you've done Church History, and then you specialized on a certain. Uh, kind of aspect of that. Yeah. Now, you've been a pastor throughout that entire time. You are a pastor currently, or a lead pastor um, at your church, and uh, so help us understand what that journey was was like. Some some wisdom. Ooh, some wisdom. Don't do it. No, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't shouldn't say that. Uh, you know, uh, with the early parts, so the poli sci undergrad that you know. I was actively involved in ministry, but uh, still 
not not full time or anything like that. Uh, when I started the MDiv program, as most students do, they do some sort of field work at a church, and for the most part, mine was uh, I, I was putting in about thirty hours a week while doing the MDiv, um, which I don't recommend. So if anyone's out there wanting to be a, a pastoral study student, do an MDiv. I don't, I recommend being active, you know, doing field work, but really that's a good time to learn and focus in on your studies, focus in on mentorship growing. Uh, but I was doing tons of, tons of ministry at the time. And then once I finished the MDiv, I took a, a, a longer, it was a longer process for the, the THM just because I was taking one class at a time hmm. since I was full-time in the pastoral ministry. Uh, and then eventually I decided, okay, time to, to do the PhD. And while planting a church, that was probably not the wisest plan either. <laughs> so, um, yeah. What was, what was the year difference yeah. between your, your THM and your PhD, like going back? Yeah. So I finished the THM in uh, spring of 2008. And then by summer of 2012, I started the PhD program, but, uh, it took me about two years to settle in on, okay, I should or should not apply. I, I wanted to go on, but when you're doing full-time pastoral work and starting a family, it's tough. And uh, so trying to prayerfully consider it. So I, I, I did not apply right out of the THM. Mm -hmm. I waited, I took some time, I prayed, and I was interacting with my mentor at Fuller for about two years prior to starting the program. Wow. So he and I were talking, he, he finally at some point said, Hey, I'm going to retire soon. So you better come if you're going to do the PhD. So you're going to do yeah. this. And, and you're married, you have children um, Two kids. And, 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 and the dynamics of that. I mean, um, right. Like uh, I'm going to study or I'm going to go hang out with my kids and yeah. I'm going to counsel. I mean, you get the work aspect in regards to church and counseling that might be a bit easier. I think it's probably easier to say no to, um, Work. sadly but to say no <laughs> to well no i think it's it's actually easier to say no to your children and then oh, go yeah. study mm -hmm. because yeah. with work you're like well you know i gotta be at work or i'm out of the house or something like that right like yeah how, how's that work out yeah i'll be honest i i had made a commitment to my wife uh and to the family and also really to the lord that uh this my my studies because it wasn't necessary for me you know to get the phd it was, you know, for the pastoral work that I'm doing, mm -hmm. I didn't have to have it. Um, yes, I do feel a call to teach and I would love to write. And so for those reasons, I thought it was important. But since it wasn't an absolute necessity for the particular calling that I have, I told my wife and uh, kids that, hey, it's going to be the third thing on the list. You know, um, they're first, obviously the Lord first, yeah, but yeah. then family, then ministry and then my studies. And, you know, praise the Lord, I was able to stay faithful to that. It was not easy. I, I didn't get to study as much as I wanted, in all honesty. Um, but I didn't disrupt the family. And to me, that was a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. My wife jokes, she jokes about the fact that she goes, I don't know when you wrote this dissertation. Like, <laughs> I, I have no idea. You know, so I would do after hours, kids would be in bed, then I'd go to study. Um, I'd utilize my day off during the week. Um, Really, I just spend as much time in the library as possible, um, and that's then so I awesome. do. I, yeah, yeah. That that really is. Um, I, I guess that's like the wisdom, right? Like you. So before you got going in it, you're like you sat down with your family, you told your wife, "Here's my commitment. Like you got to keep me accountable to this. If you see me not doing this, 
yeah you know you you have the right to call me out on it and say hey come back repent yep. <laughs> yeah and there were a few times you know you're in the middle of this process and really for the phd endurance is kind of the most important thing just sticking with it and so it's there were a couple of times that i'm like you know what is it worth it should i just you know quit <laughs> and my wife was right there going no you know oh. what you've put in the effort you uh you've been faithful to what you've said and and so keep going just put in a few more years no a few more uh, months or whatever it was of, of work so yeah that, that's amazing and, and you're full-time pastor full-time uh, pastor two years into the phd program i was planting a church and uh that I was told, Hey, if you're going to plant the church, you can't do anything else at all. That's it. And, uh, they're probably right. I shouldn't have done anything else, but, uh, but you know what? The Lord honestly gives you stamina strength to get the work done that, that he's called you to. So. Amen. Amen to that, man. Uh, so in, as, as you kind of, uh, transition, by the way, uh, let me just say something that's very important here. Cause the other day we were talking about this. Someone asked me why we have churches that generally folks in the churches don't tend to be theologically um, up to par, I guess, like not interested. And my analysis was because I think we've seen a loss of the theologian pastor. Hmm. Um, and the, 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 my observation, right, there's, um, I can't quote any studies on that, but I think we have a lot of people in the pulpit who are more practitioners and there's need for that and, and all glory to God for that. But people are generally in congregations going to resonate with and follow along with what they're getting from the pulpit. And if you have a pastor that is theologically minded, that brings these subjects up, uh, then the congregation is going to obviously get fed from that and then react to that rather than not. Now you, in my mind, are one of those theologian pastors uh, because I, I know you and we talk quite a bit and, and I, I see the way you do ministry. Uh, what, what are the kind of the challenges you've seen in the midst of that, right? Because there are all sorts of things could be said about an individual who's like that. Yeah. First, I, I appreciate that you categorize me that way. I don't know if I'd categorize myself that way, but I, you know, I try. Um, and the reality is there, the challenge is look, a lot of people in the congregation are not used to it. They're not used to thinking in those terms, in those ways, uh, digging as deep as we'd like to. And sometimes, or not sometimes, so often they're trained by American evangelicalism around us that really goes after, you know, five techniques of blah, 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 mm. you know, seven ways to be a better husband. You know, I, I had someone come and complain to me, say, well, why are your sermons about the theology rather than just give me the, the steps that I need to follow. You know, I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better husband. I want to be, how do I do that? And th that's what we've been trained under in terms of kind of popular American evangelicalism, uh, at least the mega church model that a lot of people have been fed. So that does become a challenge until you kind of spend that personal time to really shepherd and disciple folks into seeing that, um, pursuit of God and worship requires that we want to get to know him and his word deeply. Um, and as they see depth of knowledge and depth of study as worship, it begins to change things for them. So yeah, some people are never going to be the deepest theologians, but in the church, right? My grandmother, one of the most faithful women 
she, she was never going to be theologically astute, you know, in that way, but she certainly saw the value of knowing Christ and knowing God. So, yeah. Amen to that. Amen to the faithfulness of individuals like that. Yeah. Amen. And, Absolutely. Uh, let's shift gears here. Uh, tell tell yeah. us what you did your dissertation on, and, and that, that'll help us kind of uh, outline what we're, what we're talking about. What did I do my dissertation on? Oh, man. I've tried to forget what I did my dissertation on. No, I, I, uh, I studied late 17th century and early 18th century England. Uh, so we, we talk about the long 18th century, which really goes uh, from the middle of the 17th century. So after what's called the ejection, so after all the Puritans were cast out of the Anglican Church after the Restoration, until early 18, uh, my, the guy that I studied died in uh, 1704. Um, or was it 1706? Now, now I, sh I should know this. It's okay. But one, one, one of those years, a couple of years is not that big a deal. So his name was James Owen, and he was a Presbyterian uh, minister, and also uh, what's called the, a, a, a dissenting tutor. So hmm. kind of the, what we know as the, the seminary model today, uh, because those that were not Anglican were not allowed to attend Oxford or Cambridge or the universities in England, because they were not really, it wasn't legal to be uh, until 1689. They, they weren't able to be Presbyterian or Congregationalist and have their churches. And it kind of had to be an underground church at the time. So all these dissenting academies started up. And that meant that pastors and theologians in their homes were training up people. So a lot of these Puritan guys that were rejected were in their churches, in their homes, running kind of makeshift seminaries. And, uh, uh, James Owen was one of those tutors. He ended up having two um, dissenting academies that he ran uh, before he he died. Hmm. So not not to be confused with John Owen. Please don't confuse him with John Owen. That that small figure, John Owen, in in church history, everyone always goes, "Oh, you're studying John Owen." I'm like, I wish no, no, I'm studying James Owen. Yeah, so you probably uh, never heard of this. Guy. <laughs> they're like. I'm I'm trying to make him famous. That's what I'm trying to do. So okay, tell James us what's unique famous. about this guy. What what grabbed your attention? I mean, look, you've dedicated a number of years to studying this individual that is maybe like a comma in church history, if if that right, like if, when, if that, <laughs> yeah, um, barely, yeah. So so why? I mean, you probably know some of this, uh, Arthur. Is you're you've thought about kind of graduate studies and things, but when it comes to PhD programs. You, you have to find a niche that that's what you need to do to to write a dissertation you have to add to the scholarly dis, scholarly discussion and there are various ways that you can do that right you can do that by uh, taking a perspective on something that's been out there that others haven't taken before you know like if I was going to study John Owen I'd have to come up with a way that someone you know others haven't looked at him so I'm going to look at you know one little perspective mm. or you could find a figure that seems important, but, um, you know, no one has studied. And so in, in my case, uh, I started seeing James Owen's name come up in various debates that I was reading. And I asked my, my professor, my mentor, I said, Hey, has anyone that you know of done work on James Owen? And he said, nothing that I know of, oh. let's look for it. So we start looking to, to see if anyone's done work. You contact other professors that are in the field and you go, hey, do you know anything? And uh, when when they said, nope, uh, I said, oh, this could be my in. Um, because of the particular debates that he was involved with, they, were, they spoke to me as something I was interested in. 
And so I was able to dig in, uh, find out that there was enough extant material uh, that I could study and, and write a dissertation on, important enough debates that um, he's kind of connected to a number of other people and other issues. So, okay, yeah, so that's how I landed on him. Um, what, what were so important about these debates that caught your eye? Yeah, so the first one that he was involved with it was on uh, ordination. And I'd always been intrigued as to kind of ordination training and preparation in different denominations, wondering kind of what the differences were. And so as I came upon his one of his debates, he was debating in print with an Anglican on the topic of the legitimacy of Presbyterian ordination. So the Anglican church said, hey, look, if there's no diocesan bishop, if you don't have a bishop that's doing the ordaining, your ordinations aren't even valid. Uh, so with, with that, uh, you know, he dug into what is the role of the pastor? What is ordination? Um, what makes a legitimate ordinance? What, what, what makes the, the denomination legitimate? You know, so digging in there, that was intriguing to me. A lot of ecclesiology, mm. uh, then the other debate that he was involved is kind of more pertinent to what you and I want to talk about today, which had to do with unity. So he was uh, involved, there, there was a practice called occasional conformity. Okay. So as I said, it wasn't legal to be a Presbyterian, a Congregationalist, or a Baptist, or anything but Anglican for the longest time after the ejection and what's called the Restoration. So in that period of time, uh, you started seeing this practice of some of people like Philip Henry, you know, Matthew Henry's dad, uh, and Richard Baxter, you know, these guys were kicked out of the church and they couldn't be pastors anymore. And so they had decisions to make. What are they going to do? They started kind of underground services, conventicles, they were called. But at the same time, they, they still believe that a lot of these Anglicans were their brothers. And so they would, on occasion, go to worship services in the Anglican church, take the Lord's Supper, and participate. Wow. So James Owen says that that's a legitimate practice because the Anglican church is a true church. And there are theological reasons why we should show public unity. Um, of course, the Anglicans got mad because the way that you qualified for public office, because dissenters weren't even allowed to hold public office. So to hold public office, you had to take the Lord's Supper in the Anglican church. You had to conform. And so they're like, wait a minute, you guys are coming in, even though you're dissenters, you're taking communion, qualifying for office, this should be illegal. And so they came after that practice. And Owen said, look, I, I do not agree with those that do it for political reasons. I think that if they're doing it to qualify for office, that's a, that's a high crime. That's ridiculous. Mm. But here is the theological, ecclesiological argument that I think bears a lot of weight or holds a lot of weight that you should, we should want um, Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists to take the Lord's Supper together with Anglicans as we show a public unity uh, as Reformed Protestants. Uh, so that was one of the big debates that he was involved in. Okay, so th this is, uh, it's close to both our hearts, okay, um, yeah. for, for the audience that doesn't know. Um, <laughs> when, when you and I hang out, there's quite a bit of joking uh, that takes place for many, many no. reasons. Many reasons, right? So I, I classify myself, I guess, as a philosopher, and so do you classify me as a philosopher, and you're a yes, theologian, and there's that whole thing. Um, and, but 
you tend to be uh, more reformed, biblical. I right? tend to be biblical. <laughs> there you right? go. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. and so do I. But, um, but so you're more on the reform side, on the Calvinist side. Uh, yeah. I'm not. Uh, yet we have a really good relationship. Uh, we yep. honor one, one one another. We respect one another, um, yep. and we disagree with each other when we're talking. Um, I don't know about you, but I learn from you quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> so when you're talking, I'm listening. Um, uh, likewise, and, absolutely uh, appreciate that. Um, uh, so, since this is very important uh, in that kind of conversation, one of the things that I'm continuously seeing, even more maybe now, especially yeah. in the online sphere, oh. is yep. these sharp divides and lines that get drawn. Where uh, the worst part is people being accused that they're not even a Christian. Yeah. It's like you disagree yeah. with me on this issue, whatever it may be, and uh, are you really a Christian, right? Um, yeah. That's as bad as it can get, in my opinion. But then there's just like lack of friendship, community. I mean, I was I was doing my my Armenia classes today in the morning, and we were we were discussing marriage, and and one of the issues that came up with cross denominational marriages, <laughs> and I was just like, wow. <laughs> I was like, like, no issue for me. Like, right. Like if yeah. you're a Christian, uh, okay, cool. Like deal, deal with that stuff. But it, it is an issue for some people. It's like, can I marry yeah. someone from a different denomination? So what can we, yeah. what can we learn, I guess, from church history as we've seen, because these differences get used against us quite a bit. Look how yeah. divided Christians are and maybe specifically look how divided Protestants are. Protestantism sure. brought about like just thousands of denominations and differences and all this stuff. How can we use that in a positive in the sense of, hey, let's learn from that. And in the midst of being different, we can still be in unity. And here's what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really fascinating because James Owen would say, hey, look, um, it actually strengthens the Protestant church, the reformed. And for him, Protestant, in other words, the, the one thing that unified a lot of these guys was their anti-Roman Catholic bent. Okay. So they were very much against Roman Catholicism and anyone that, that was against, they wanted to be unified with, mm -hmm. except the, the real crazy, you know, folks that they would categorize in certain ways. Now we won't, I won't label those, but so for Owen, he kept saying, look, it strengthened Owen and, and some of his, the circle of friends around him, they kept saying, we strengthen Christ's church by allowing for differences. If you, if you have this uniform uh, thinking that and disallow uh, this liberty and, and some diversity, what ends up happening is you actually don't allow for real reform, reform to take place. Because reform takes place when someone kind of breaks off and starts seeing something a little different than maybe the, the rest of the group. And so he would say, hey, look, if you don't have any space for reform in your system, then you are at danger in danger of, of lacking purity and not even being, being able to self-correct. Uh, whereas they would say that the reform thinking was that the scriptures are always going to correct us. And so we've got to be open to reform. We've got to be open to conversation. We've got to be open to having uh, these uh, genuine conversations about doctrine and ritual and all the things that uh, have to do with the church, ecclesiology, or, or ecclesiastical things. And so, okay. yeah, that, yeah. 
we're getting some we're getting some comments coming in here. Um, I guess that's like oh. about denominations and stuff like that. So, f- guys, uh, please put in the questions, um, and then we'll we'll adro- address those questions uh, specifically. So, w- there there's this old statement, right, that attributed to um, Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it. Um, that in in the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. Right. Um, I I would suppose that's where we start. It's like okay, here are the essentials. Yeah. Right? The Trinity, yeah, the Bible being the Word of God, salvation is in Christ, like th- those aspects. Yep. Um. On a practical level, because yeah. emotions get involved, right? <laughs> like, um, it's like if I believe this view. Um, or we accuse one another of certain things that might not necessarily be true or it might not be true of the person. I mean, I've had to defend Calvinists <laughs> so much. How um, dare you? Uh, and, and, and so my Calvinist friends like to think that I'm an underground hidden Calvinist. But um, So like statements being made, like, oh, your view of God is such. Uh, I'm just yeah. like, no, no, that, that is not what their view of God is. That's a misrepresentation yeah. of what their view is. But now there's an accusation being made. And then it becomes yeah. problematic because who would believe in a God like whatever they're accusing of, right? Yeah. So the charity practically given there, what does that look like? How do we go yep. about that? What can we glean from these guys? How did they practice it? So, so these guys had four principles that I pulled out as I was, so I, as I studied James Owen, I saw that the circle around him actually was a little broader. It was Philip Henry as a mentor to him and Matthew Henry as a deep, deep, close friend of his. Hmm. So James Owen's friend was uh, Matthew Henry and this other guy, Francis Talents, who he worked with. And then Edmund Calamy, who's, uh, I believe it was his father. Uh, who was, or maybe it was his grandfather, it was part of the Westminster Divine. So he was connected to this group of people. And these principles kind of came out of what I, what I call theological moderation. Okay. And the, the principles were charity uh, as the first principle. Um, here, here's, here's a definition that one of them gave, uh, or, or here's a, a, a definition that I called, I should say, out of what they said. Um, they would say a balanced, charity is a balanced approach and a sober-minded weighing of the various sides of the issue. So it's interesting. A sober-minded weighing of the various sides of the issue. Um, so that, that was the first part is charity. The second part they said is unity. As you mentioned, the quote often ascribed to Augustine, though I don't know if that's accurate, but we'll say it is for yeah. now. Um, unity in the essentials and what they would say is unity in the foundational doctrines along with liberty in the secondary issues because they said look in those secondary issues if you give them a little more space you're going to actually find that you're going to have greater unity on the core Mm. Uh, what's interesting and you see that right when we make the lines so clear in in certain narrow ways we actually are breaking ourselves up far more than we ought to but if you give space for some of these, you know, perspectives, even the philosopher's perspectives, you know, for instance, on all that speculative stuff, you know, uh, you, you can, you can emphasize. And by the way, I think this is where confessionalism comes in. You emphasize the core and then you, you pursue those kind of the marginal things, right? Um, so charity, unity, in doctrine. And by the way, that was a big deal for them because they said unity is not in the bishop. It's not in a, a, a location. 
it's not in what particular denomination unity is in the, the apostolic teaching it's in doctrine and so the the third thing they said is separation that's not schismatic huh. now what they mean is you can separate and have differences that you even think are important enough to have your own kind of local gathering of believers rather than you know look let's be honest if one church holds to uh you know, female pastors and another doesn't, it's very hard, practically speaking for them, you know, th those that their, their consciences don't allow them to sit under a, a female preacher, mm -hmm. it's going to be really hard. What are they going to do, right? Infant baptism sometimes versus believer baptism. These may make sense to have our own local gathering of believers, but at the same time, you don't have to be schismatic. You don't have to vilify the other person. James Owen said, hey, look, you go to the local gathering that is best for your soul and the nourishment of your Christian walk. That might mean an Anglican church. It might mean a Presbyterian church. It might mean a Baptist church. That's where you go, but you always keep your eye on the mystical body, he would say, or the, the, the broader body of Christ, which is all of the church uh, that is in Christ. And we are one, and so we should seek public opportunities to show unity uh you know me being on your show <clears throat> arthur <it's, laughs> no pu public unity so charity unity separation without schism and then emphasizing what they would say is lordship of christ over conscience right so it's it really this is a version of sola scriptura a version of saying it's the authority is in in christ and his word and we not in you know our authority as as pastors is the word not the sword and you know keep keep that in mind that the final authority is always belongs to the lord and it's through his word so there's some of the principles they laid out this is phenomenal um look the, the one that sticks out to me mm -hmm. the most that i i, I just kind of want to like dig into yeah is is this one about separation that's not schismatic yeah because generally speaking, we see separation as a negative. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's almost never uh, like, woohoo, we're separated. This is, yeah. I mean, unless the group doing the separating is like, finally, we got rid of them, right? Uh, but um, even, e even the group that's like, the separation is coming through. And biblically, uh, so the thing that just comes to my mind is this sort of conflict that maybe John's disciples see with Jesus. John the Baptist disciples. Right. Um, right. Um, it's like, oh, these guys are baptizing too. And then John's response right. is like, dude, he's got to increase. I got to decrease. One of the dynamics that comes in there is that some of John's disciples have actually gone and become Jesus disciples. Yeah. And he doesn't and see And you wonder why all of them didn't, right? I know. How that, that'd be very right. You wonder what's going on there. Yeah. Jesus sure. was like, no, you guys can stay back. <laughs> too <laughs> radical, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, like I've, I've heard, I've heard of um, churches essentially realizing they're going to go through some kind of a separation or something like that. And then jumping ahead and saying, no, we're going to do this in a more healthy way. So we're going to use them as a church plant, for example. Like, mm -hmm. even though th yep. the reason why this is happening, there's some theological differences. There's maybe even some character and personality differences. But they did. They they do stuff like that in such a healthy way, where you go, man, that's like you kind of like in a good way envy it. You go, that that's so awesome. Yep. It's such a good, 
good model. So that that speaks volumes, I think. Separation as uh, that's not schismatic. What is there more we can say about that, or you can say about that? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that was one that really captured my attention, and I want to dig in more. And actually, I have some work that I'm trying to do on capturing more of it, and I'd like to to write on that specifically because I think that what what we can identify here is a heart that says, look, you can disagree. And I think you and I, Arthur, have talked about this. You can disagree in a way that's actually doxological, in a way that is worshipful, uh, rather than a, in a way that is harmful and and creates rift and, and division. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you and I disagree, and I believe this fully about you, Arthur, and so that's why I think this is a great example. If you and I disagree on something, it's because at the very least, at least consciously, we are both pursuing the truth about our God. We want Amen. to know our God. We want to worship him. And part of worshiping is, is knowing him accurately, knowing him well, according to what he's revealed in the scriptures. And so if you and I disagree, um, it's, it's because we're both pursuing a greater depth in our knowledge and our worship. So can't that be in and of itself doxological and worshipful. So you and I get together. We first emphasize that here's where we agree. We're brothers because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We both know that it's by Christ's blood alone mm. and in faith alone in him and the work he's done. Okay. We start there and we go, Hey, but do you think that that blood was shed for everybody? And I go, well, Depends on what you mean, right, Arthur? And so we start going, you go, no, I think it's, it, the atonement is unlimited. And I say, well, no, I think it's limited. Now we're at a place of divide. Do we have to? What if I go, well, what are you trying to defend by saying that the atonement is unlimited? And you start talking about the glorious character of God, the justice of God, the fairness of God. Whether I agree with definitions that you give, you're trying to defend the character of a God who's worthy of worship. And you ask me, well, why are you so set on this idea of limited atonement? And I go, well, because the work that Christ did as Savior is not wasted. He saves those that he wants to save. And so in terms of the efficacy of his work, and you go, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I don't think you're right in the way you unpack that. But, okay, well, you're honing me. I'm shaping you and, sure. and honing you and vice versa. And there's nothing bad about what we've talked about. I think you're probably wrong. You think I'm probably wrong. But the reality is we have to hold to some of these claims a little more modestly. And I think that's a big part of that I had in my notes in terms of how theological conversation has to go. I think it needs to be more modest, more humble, a hermeneutic of humility I, I have, have written down and, and thought about quite a bit. Um, because when I have modesty, it's I'm humbling myself, not just in front of my brother, but before the Lord, because God is infinite and I'm finite. I have a lot of limitations. And he's given me brothers and sisters to shape me. Why not? Right? That's where the ecclesiology comes in and the body of Christ comes in. Amen. Amen. Let me jump into some com uh, some questions that have come in, okay? So sure. Jeremy here, uh, Jeremy says, how do we determine what is a secondary issue versus what is a primary issue? That's... <laughs> Thanks for asking the the right question that I don't want to answer because <laughs> I wish I, I had a better answer. But I mean, you know, there's some good books out there. I think Gavin Ortland um, wrote a really good book 
short one on the topic of, you know, where, you know, what hills to die on. Um, there's another Ryan, I think his name is Putnam could be Putnam, Putnam, I think has written a really good book on doctrines that divide and kind of how to think about some of these issues. Um, I'm going to give you a quote from John Owen, not James Owen this time. Let me give you a quote from John Owen. I have it written here somewhere. And I think this, it was helpful to me. It's in his commentary on Hebrews. Hmm. And he says, it's not every mistake, every error, though it be in things of great importance, while it overthrows not the foundation that can divest men of a fraternal interest with others in the heavenly calling. Okay. So he's saying, look, you, in other words, there's a lot of mistakes, a lot of differences, a lot of errors, even in important things. But as long as it's not in that foundation, which is the gospel, um, and I think as simply stated as possible that it is right, Christ alone who has paid the price to cover our debts, uh, you know, you, you go into, and, and by faith alone, we receive that gift. Outside of that gospel foundation, um, it's it's hard to really go beyond that and say these are the essentials. Now, I think they're really important things that we can divide on in terms of local church, like I said, but those don't necessarily have to divide us in terms of being able to show a public unity and a oneness. But that's a, a work that I need to continue thinking yeah. about and praying through too. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's like mere Christianity. It's like, here's a thing. If you deny it, you can't be claimed to be, like, that's an essential. It's like, oh, I don't believe in the Trinity. It's like, okay, that's an essential. You know, you're, you're not a Christian anymore. Yeah. Um, things of that yeah. sort, I think it's a lot easier to, um, to define what these primary issues are versus secondary issues. The yeah. other thing is that sometimes people will, uh, they will say something that seems like a secondary issue, but it's not really what they're saying that's secondary. It's their explanation of a primary issue, right? Um, and and again, that gets a bit more difficult to kind of nuance, and you want to hear quite a bit more about it. Sometimes people just don't have the ability to think theologically well, and so yeah. they might believe something but not know how to express it very well. So again, this this is where I think we ought to have quite a bit of grace on our brothers and sisters. It's like, I believe in the Trinity. It's like, okay, do it. It's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Arthur, you, you, I, I believe this is the right way of talking about this. You're the philosopher. So I think there's the difference between material heresy and formal heresy, mm -hmm. right? So you got guys that just can't articulate well the doctrine of the Trinity, which very few people seem to be able to. And so don't ask me to try it now. Um, and then there are those that who formally get it wrong. They formally, they know the right, they, they hear the right articulation and formulation and they, they reject it. Yeah. That's a formal heresy. And that I think puts you out of bounds, right? But someone who's just, you know, someone who's unable to articulate well, but when they're given the truth, they're able to, they, they affirm it. You know, that's a big, yeah. Big the, the amount of times I've heard various pastors from the pulpit say things like Jesus laid aside his deity uh, when they're talking about Philippians too, and I'm cringing like in the pews yeah. and and like watching Jesus. it online, and I'm just like, don't say that, please don't, say, you know, that's, you know, and um, but and then I speak to those people afterwards, and and I yeah. have conversations when we're having coffee and stuff like that, and then it's like, no, they don't believe that, they just yeah. it's it's an articulation issue, uh, yeah. and there can we're be not careful, issues. yeah, not careful we're not, language we're not difference. Careful. Look, I was in Armenia in um in July 
and uh, we were doing a little panel, and uh, there's a really good brother in Armenia who is very theologically astute, solid guy, and expresses himself well. Someone asked me a question, and then I started articulating it, and um, and I, my Armenian's good, but not that good theologically, uh, <laughs> and then so he sort of jumped in and said, here's the word you're looking for. Um, and that's because he knew the theological terminology, because yeah. if I went along with what, what, I, what I was saying, it would have um, misled people. It, it, it would have been not the best explanation of whatever the question was. So, um, and that's just the language difference. That's not because, like, if they asked me that in English, I would have, you know, had a fine answer. But yeah, he just knew the language. So there's language differences. Um, Look. Think about this. Think again, because I'm a pastor, I, I think about the church. What what does it take for someone to be a member of the local church, right? And I forget my good friends that you know have a different view of membership. Forget <laughs> formal membership or not. I'm just saying, one who's accepted as as a brother in the church, right? Um, you're not asking them to tell you their opinion on the five points of Calvinism, uh, or you know, you're really not even asking them about are they. Uh, you know, do they believe in classical theism? Do they do they uh, read Aqu the, the famous Twitter stuff going on? Do they read Aquinas or <laughs> yeah, do they yeah. reject? You know, okay, you know, you're not asking those things. You're asking them some very basic foundational things. We have a ten point statement in our church that it, we believe is just kind of a minimalist look at things like the Trinity, things like the the, the, the scriptures as authority and and uh, the salvation in Christ alone that he will return and we don't take an eschatological position, hmm. then we have a we have a, a doctrinal statement and a teaching position as a church that's much more thorough. And if someone wants to be an elder in the church or an officer in the church, they would have to abide by the what we hold to is the London Baptist Confession of 1689. But, uh, but to be a part of the body, and I think that's what we're asking for. What's the essentials? I think it's that, that basic, here's what it means to be a Christian. And I think that history of the church has kind of laid that out in some things that we can look at, you know, Nicaea, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and then some basics on uh, on soteriology. And I think beyond that, the rest is, again, I don't think that's unimportant because, you know, I have some pretty uh, strong positions on right. things. I think it's important, but um, in terms of the essentials and can we show unity, you know, can we show a public face to the world? Of unity what is so attractive about the catholic church to some protestants there is a unity correct right now there's probably a lot more division than we give it credit for okay that's true but there is a unity within their teaching because of the, the pope and his teaching same with the anglicans there's something uh that about the bishops and the way they have this this real deep unity in, in with that regard in episcopalianism so i think that's appreciated uh, but we can find it in a different way you know, I think it's, we it's, should be doing it. It's, it's hilarious to me that um, when I think about all the giants we've had throughout church history, <coughs> that sometimes we make these statements and we come off in such a way where some of these giants would not be allowed to teach at our churches, which, <laughs> which just shocks me, right? Like, uh, so uh, some of these guys will like stand there and make statements. And I'm like, if, if, if Martin Luther was next to you, if John Calvin was next to you, would, would he be allowed to yeah. teach from your pulpit. The answer to that question should tell you how generous you should be to yeah. your brothers who would agree with those individuals. 
And it's yeah. like, if, if John Wesley was there, it's like, you're going to allow this guy to preach. You're going to allow that. You're going to do ministry with this guy. At an outreach service, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't I mean, know if I'd let him preach, the, but no. The, the street preacher, right? Yeah. Um, and and th that's the sort of stuff. It's like, I reflect on that. I go, okay, here's, here's an individual. If I'm reading this man's commentary and I'm learning from him and I disagree with him, why wouldn't I give this stuff to the congregation? Why wouldn't yeah. I say, hey, look, here's a giant. This guy was phenomenal. And here's what his take on this passage is. Now, I don't yeah. agree with him, but at least you should know what his take on this passage is. Okay. And, and I think that's important. I think, that, but there's, there's some boundaries, right? Not boundaries of, um, I, I think in terms of shepherding and in the church, right? If, if church is being done right, then I think that there is uh, wisdom in, and I think it's safe to allow or not allow you, we have no say if people want to read, mm -hmm. they can read, right. Uh, encourage, right. Reading, uh, all sorts of people in all sorts of different positions. If, the, if the church is being done right, there's shepherding, there is real accountability. And, uh, but when you've got this church hopping and this kind of commercial view of the church, like we have in the United States, it makes that a little bit trickier, uh, because they're not really being shepherded, you know, no matter what you think, the guy on television or the guy on the radio, that's not your pastor. Yes. It really is not. <laughs> you know, uh, if you have no access to that person and no interaction with the elders and there's no real care for your soul, um, you know, then it's just academic stuff. And that's mm -hmm. why I love the confessions because it puts everything into the church context. Correct. Um, here's another question. Um, yeah. Should a Christian attend a church that is more in line with their theological views because the leaders can provide better answers. Yeah, possibly. I don't think it's necessary uh, because better answers are not always all that we need, especially if there are moral issues going on there where the, the leaders are morally bankrupt, let's say, mm -hmm. right? But they're really good teachers or, you know, something like that. Uh, not, you know, that's an extreme view, obviously. But I, so I think that it's more than than just kind of this doctrinal theological position. There are, let me give you this. When, when I go out to, uh, we, you know, on vacation somewhere, and I don't know anything about the churches in the area, but I want to go worship on the Lord's Day. Uh, you know what I look for? I look for a Calvary Chapel. Hmm. And I am so far, I am not <laughs> Calvary Chapel. All right, I'm this. not. But, but I know pretty much guaranteed you're going to get a Bible believing guy who loves the Lord and he's just going to preach scripture as best he can for the glory of God. I may disagree. There may be a lot of things that they say. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Okay. But I want to go worship with brothers and sisters. That's where I look for. Cause sometimes you find a Presbyterian church that maybe doctrinally I might be more in line with and, and they're way out there in a variety of ways. Right. So, um, it's 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 something that so I think doctrine matters a yeah. lot, but it's not the only issue that I yeah, would take and I think the context here might matter as well because you might have a deep love, let's just say, with the community and the brothers and sisters. Maybe you might not even say you're in a place in the world where the leadership is not like that mature and that sound right. and all that stuff, but for the sake of what God is doing in the midst of that. Like I can, I can think about like villages around the world where you're not going to have the highest theologically trained individuals, yeah. but that's where you need to be. So um, yeah, it, it's not just like they have better answers and they can lead in that kind of a way.
Yeah. And it's, it's part of it is also like, let's say you've grown up in a church and then you've developed doctrinally. Should you leave that church? Or is there something about the gifting that God has given you to remain there in that church and be uh, using your spiritual gifts for the mutual benefit of the body that's there? Uh, again, so as long as the core foundational things are there, uh, then it's then it's there's more to the conversation is is all I can say. Again, there's no th- rule of thumb, one size fits all. Hmm. Okay, we got a two part question here for you. Uh, what is your opinion on the fundamentalist churches? That's the first one. Uh, and the second one is, are the theological teachings helpful to people or are they damaging? Fundamentalist churches. So I have to be honest and say that I don't know um, too, too much about all the, the kind of the fundamentalist churches, except kind of what I see culturally and what I, you know, what I see on Twitter and, and those kinds of things. And of course, historically, anything that I've read, but um, it seems to me that some of the fundamentalist biblicism that has a wrong understanding of sola scriptura, uh, you know, maybe King James only kind of stuff that's going on. That again, uh, I think there are probably some really good brothers that are somehow persuaded of those things. Um, so some of those things I think can be very damaging. I think those are not helpful. Um, but again, if I had a choice between the fundamentalist and someone who's doesn't even hold to the core gospel, right? I'm going to go with that com- fundamentalist brother and and we could duke it out and have these disagreements and conversations. But so so I do think though that fundamentalism, this very inward looking, leaving the academy, all the things that happened in the early 20th century were probably not great things for the church. Although I think they probably had a role to play and protected some things too. Um, but yeah, I, so yes, I do think they can be damaging. Okay, so that's bo- both are answered there. I'm having a hard time with this other question, so help me figure it out. Um, are are there? I'm guessing there are there technically two different gods. I mean, they're not using this in a literalist sense, I, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but for example, my God works monergistically, and then while your God works synergistically. Uh, no, because God works the way he works uh and we are seeking to understand that right and there's uh something about our our finite limitations or our reasoning that doesn't allow us to have perfect doctrine and, and theology right so i think that there are certain you know if i ask oh, my father is a is a armenian he's armenian and an armenian okay and uh, but if i ask him who saves is it God or, or man? Who's doing the saving? He's not going to say the man is saving himself or the woman is saving herself. He says God is saving. And whether he can put it all together in a way that um, is acceptable or satisfying to other people, uh, he worships God because God is the God of salvation. Mm. He asks me the same thing. How could you get up and preach the gospel if you are convinced that it, God calls elects and changes their hearts and you know and i give it an explanation as best i can it might not be satisfying to him but he's confident that i believe that the gospel needs to go forward and people need to hear it to be saved so i think that we're going to wrestle with some of these things look when it comes to justification you know my view is uh, well i think justification and sanctification are monergistic but i know that even rc sproul thinks that sanctification is synergistic right 
and, and people that I respect a lot, even in my own doctrinal camps. But I think we have to, again, start with the incomprehensibility of God, balance that with the revelation of God. So there is a knowability. And then this limited, finite, you know, finite humans pursuing that God by the power of the spirit that he's given to us. And, and we're going to have differences, but we're still pursuing the same God, um, you know, within that, those boundaries. And one day the Lord's going to clear it up and he's going to say, Arthur, you were wrong. Yeah. And Jason was right. No, I, I strongly and, and, believe and, we're and, all going to And at be that, shocked. we both <laughs> shall fall to our knees and worship him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, that, I, I guess maybe the, the, it helps with the philosophical stuff, okay? Uh, or the philosophical stuff helps with some of this stuff. You get you get facts, you get data, like raw data that you're looking at. And then there's the interpreting that happens with the data. In epistemology, this is um, usually called um, like epistemic disagree, uh, disagreement, uh, disagreement amongst epistemic peers, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea there is... Uh, consider a situation where you have two people who have the same exact information, they have the same processing skills, whatever. Yeah, everything's the same. I, is it even possible for those two people to come to different conclusions on the matter? Now, we'll just leave that on the side, but that's what we're dealing with. We're looking at the text of the Bible and we're seeing, we're saying, hey, here, here's my, my take on this. Here are the reasons for that. Here's the way I'm breaking it down. But at the right. same time, allowing room for um, our emotions, allowing room for our finite thinking, allowing room for the way we were raised and things that we're yeah, inclined to, yep, you know, sure. all sorts of stuff. Yep. Um, so like one of the things I've, I've noticed is that people who are a lot more disciplined and enjoy discipline, enjoy the more reformed Calvinist view. <laughs> right. And, um, and it, it's like, like, I get it. I, I, now that's not, I'm not saying that's the only reason there, that that would be right. a very unfair, um, I don't fit that camp, situation. Arthur. Oh yeah. I'm not very re- rebellious so. kind, <laughs> but that, it's, you, you know, what I love about, uh, uh, you is that even within your family, like with your dad as a preacher has been a preacher for yep. a very, very long time, um, yep. and has been very faithful to that, but it's theologically different from you. And then oh, yeah. your, I would say like more, it, Maybe in your family, you're like middle of the ground. I'm not sure how you didn't do that. But your, your brother is um, more in line with you, but again, very different in regards to his theological. Yeah. And he's a pastor as well. And yeah. like you keep the unity in your family, which is great because we also see families fall apart over this stuff. This is where the sure. pastoral kind of, I guess, hurt comes, comes in, where you see godly people in the same family not yeah. talking to each other or mistreating each other because of theological yeah. differences. Yeah. Uh, and that's outrageous, right? Because that, that is so, you know, I, I posted something recently on Twitter about, you know, if you can't follow the ethics of scripture, you know, uh, how can anyone trust your theology? Right. Like if, 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 if you don't take, sorry, if you don't take the, the ethics of scripture seriously, how can we trust that you take the theology seriously? Um, there's something about the way Christ has called us to live. I, I, I want to give an example. Take take an example of something like um, for, we'll, we'll leave the the reform stuff aside for a second. But take take something like creation, okay? Old Earth, Young Earth, creation, right? Um, I think that it's not just theology or systematic theology that we have to think about. We have to think about a system for systematics, right? 
in what context are these conversations important? When did Jesus use certain teachings and when did he? So when we're talking about creation, the different camps out there, what are the core issues in that issue, in that debate? You know, there are some things that are, I think are really important, like ex nihilo, yeah. that God is a God who creates out of nothing. Okay. I think personally also that something like Adam as a historical figure, I think this is important because of Romans 5 and other things like that. So you look at some of these, you, you, you don't just go, oh, I'm older, I'm younger, oh, I'm reformed, I'm whatever. You go, what are the real important issues within the issue? And go to those core things and start seeing why you hold to the position that you hold to. And maybe you agree more on those core things. Look, old earth and young earth agree on those things. They, they have fundamental agreement. Yeah, okay, they disagree on the age of the earth and, and when did death occur first? And okay, I get it. I get those things. But really the more important parts of that, the things that are really clear in scripture, okay, are the parts that we have agreement on. Can't we rejoice in that and start learning from each other instead and from yeah. the other end? Correct. Yeah, and, and, and this goes for... Um, I would say this goes for uh, things like uh, justification, for example, like you mentioned, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, if someone's sitting there saying, I'm doing the saving, I save myself, you know, glory to me or something like that. It's like, okay, man, you got an issue. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, if they're saying, we're starting with God, we're starting with Jesus, and he's doing all the saving, He's, it's his work, it's to him the glory and praise and all that stuff. It's like, okay, how do I, how do we break that down? How do we explain that? Then, Then that conversation becomes so much more fruitful and so much more, I guess, edifying would probably be the best um, word there. Absolutely. More, more fruitful, more edifying, more Christ-like, more uh, effective, because think about what we do so often. We label, we put people in a certain camp. We're like, it's done. I caricature them. I know where they stand, right? I, I was thinking about this because I just preached on the ninth commandment. That's falling into breaking of the ninth commandment. It's false testimony. Mm. When I see people calling others heretics on Twitter, I'm like, really? You got to be real careful before you say something like that, right? First of all, define your terms too. That's another interesting part of this. If we start defining what we mean, I think we're going to find with believers more agreement. Um, and and if we try to get to the heart of why someone believes they what they believe, uh, like we were talking about, there's a psychology to what we believe. Um, a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine, he's reformed. His wife's more uh, Wesleyan. Uh, he he holds to, you know, only men ought to be elders and and uh, she doesn't agree with that. Okay. They have a great marriage. Okay. They, they don't agree on it, but they have a great marriage. And he once said to me, man, I would take a, a Wesleyan or an Arminian who believes that God is just over a reformed guy who thinks that God is not just and doesn't care. Yeah. I said, wow, that's a really important point. Go back to the character of God, the attributes of God. These are foundational things too. And, and one of the things that I want to bring in a comment here, um, one of the things that we need to give room for is growth, change, change of mind and heart on, sure. on various issues. I think we've all probably developed and continue to develop theologically because we're oh, not yeah. all knowing. I mean, that's yep. just bound with. So um, we got a sister here who says, my husband and I grew up in similar backgrounds, but different denominations. I was reformed leaning and he was Wesleyan. I'm more Wesleyan now and we still disagree on a few two to three things, but have no issues. 
Amen. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's the, I guess, importance here is that we're not static. Our, right. our knowledge is not static. We're going to grow. We're going to maybe notice things in scripture that we didn't previously. I assume you grew up in a church, uh, not assume, I know you grew up in a church that wasn't very reformed. Reformed. Right. And at a certain point, you were like, um, I, I don't think I agree <laughs> with all the stuff going on here. That's right. right. And, and I've, I've had professors on, on both sides of this, right? I've had professors who were Wesleyan who ended up becoming Reformed, and I had professors who were Reformed who ended up becoming uh, Arminian or, or Wesleyan. And yeah. um, like we have to allow room for these sorts of things, especially when it comes to um, viewing Scripture. I think one of the points you mentioned here, yeah, uh, the fourth one you mentioned is the Lordship of Christ over our conscience. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And and this is such a Protestant thing, right? Like it's such a <laughs> Protestant <laughs> point. It is. <laughs> so uh, and, in regards and, to Luther and, think and, of, and his view. Yeah. And, and just think about what that means and, and think about, um, you know, we, we are, belief is not an event, right? It's, it's our lifetime. We're, we're believing and growing, you know, I believe in order to understand, right? Credo ut intelligam. We, we always are growing as Christians. We must be, we're being sanctified. If anyone thinks they've arrived at the high point of their sanctification, man, well, maybe they, if they don't know the Lord, they probably have. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but imagine thinking that, so we're growing, we're constantly in the word. The word is in us. The spirit is, is transforming us and sanctifying us. And one day there's going to be a flood of sanctification <laughs> in glory, right? Where we're going to grow. If we, if we, don't take that into consideration and we rush people to get to where we think they ought to be. Um, sometimes I think that we are harming them instead of helping them and discipling them. When I'm discipling people in the church, I will not try to make cookie cutter impressions of me. First of all, they'd, they'd be sad for them. Um, and I learn from the people I'm in a sense, shepherding and discipling. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have a group of guys that we meet with every couple of weeks, man, you know how much they shape me and hone my thinking because they are bringing up questions that I haven't thought of angles. I haven't looked at. First of all, I, I feel extremely inadequate because they're super bright guys, but man, it helps me a lot. Do I think they're right? Uh, not always. Okay. I think, I think they're wrong actually in some cases, but if I somehow demand that they believe the same way I do, it cuts off our relationship. It cuts off their growth. Um, so we've got to give that time factor uh, some its place as well in Christian discipleship and growth. So in our in our disagreements, and we're going to come to a, a close here. So folks, if you have a couple of more questions you want to uh, type in, go go for it. But uh, it seems to me that the thing that we ought to all commit to, if we want to keep a unity of this sort, is the supremacy of Scripture. This is yeah. the word of God. This is God's revelation to us. He, it is the ultimate authority on a subject. And then we want to be more gracious in, in the way we interpret that and whether we're doing our hermeneutics properly. Uh, and we can disagree with that, right? Like you can sit there and say, right. mm, I, I think you should be doing the, looking at it this way. Yep. Uh, but when we agree on the supremacy of scripture, yeah. we're, we're probably going to find a lot more things that w we find ourselves agreeing on than disagreeing on. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't think that 
the ETS's statement is quite sufficient. Hmm. But it's but it's isn't it, isn't it interesting that there are two things that they require are the Trinity and the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm not saying that it's sufficient, um, nor am I saying. I mean, I guess in some ways, is inerrancy required for salvation? That's another conversation. I I think the answer is probably no to that, right? But but in terms of even a starting place, um, I like that you've got who is God, the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And what's the source of our knowledge about him, right? Those are the two places that we we start in the in ETS, and um, which is the Evangelical Theological Society for those that may not know. Um, and that gives us somewhere that, that gives us a grounding to have these conversations, these discussions. Um, I find it very interesting that we don't worship at ETS, do we? We don't no. do like the Lord's Supper together. There's no, no that's they, we gather for speaking. Do we? They guess they have prayer meetings for optional ones, you know. It's a kind of an interesting thing. I, I kind of wish I there to, would be. I, I might have gone to one where there was some singing, but I, I'm not very sure. Okay. There wasn't this time. That was. <laughs> but yeah, but it's. It, but I think we should have. It should be part of our worship, all that we're doing and pursuing, and our studies. Yeah, and 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 we all need to realize that the chief end of doing theology is worship. Amen. Um, if, Amen. if that's not leading you, if if. Let's just say whatever you're doing a study on um, on justification, and if if you don't finish that study, uh, come to the end of it and say I'm in awe of God. He's so amazing and great. Yeah. Um, then something's lost there. Like you should take a couple oh, yeah. of steps back and say, where was the mistake? Oh yeah, Arthur. I walk away from conversations with brothers that disagree with me. Okay, I walk away uh, going. Lord, I have so much to learn because you are so big and you are so deep and you are so wise. And so often the disagreement, the areas of disagreement lead me uh, to a place of worship and a place of humility before the word of God. I think every conversation can, can get there if we do the things that the, you know, the 17th century moderate, uh, moderate uh, dissenters were advocating charity unity in essential things, separation without schism, and the lordship of Christ over conscience. I think they nail it. Uh, okay, there's a final question here, and it's a, <laughs> it just got me chuckling Uh-oh. a little bit. Um, it says, what is doctor's, <laughs> Dr. Jason's view in the Lord's Supper as opposed to the Lord's snack? And then he, uh, in parentheses, I'm only using this to show the contrast. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the idea there is that communion being an entire meal um, as opposed to just the the bread and the wine. So, question I've thought about quite a bit. So, um, it seems to me that at least historically we can say that at some point the practice of elements, you know, uh, rather than a full meal and just the elements being uh, uh, administered, you know, came about and would I say that that's wrong or unbiblical? I don't think I could say that. I think that there is there the, the important aspects of the Lord's Supper in terms of do this in remembrance of me are there in the bread being administered and the cup being administered. Now, having said that, uh, this is where I really need to you know hear more about different perspectives on this because I've often wondered personally about what we see in 
you know, first Corinthians and uh, just trying to understand what that love feast would be like. And is that more proper to what we're doing? So do I think it's wrong to do it the way most churches do it today? No. Uh, do I think there's more to it? Probably that we should explore. Uh, yes. Back when I was in a previous church, we would once in a while have a, a love feast when we you know, in the evenings and do it that way. And I thought those were really wonderful. Um, but I'm not convinced that it has to be that way yet, but hmm. I could be convinced maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry to take a non-answer position in a sense, but. No, it, it's very interesting. It depends. I, I would say it depends on like the motivation. If the motivation is that, Hey, this is something wrong. And then if we do it the other way, uh, it's going to be right. Uh, that's not biblical in the, in this sense is that in the Bible, in first Corinthians, we see even that being abused, right? right. People are getting drunk. People are uh, abusing the poor among them. Um, right. And then there's all sorts of issues that even that brings to the surface. Um, to say that there's no reason just for the cup and the bread um, would be a kind of misrepresentation because the argument's going to go, well, this is the focus that Paul brings in when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He, he mentions only these two things. I suppose you can have both. Is, is is my view um, and we we used to and maybe we'll come that uh, come back to this at our church but um, have like monthly um, Lord's Supper gatherings um, so th we did that for a while and and that was great it was a potluck thing we all came together we sat down and that's when we yeah. partook in the Lord's Supper uh, yep. but yeah uh, that's a really good question I, I think we maybe sometimes lose something when we're not eating together um, and, I think and, and focusing in on that, especially when it comes to what um, I think Paul is calling us to examine in our lives there, you know, he's not asking us to say if we have sin or not in our lives, right? We, you know, or if we're worthy somehow of the, 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 the body and blood of Christ, we're not worthy. That's the whole point of it. We're coming to receive that grace from the Lord. Um, so I think there's something to be said about when we gather with believers and are able to have fellowship and communion, right? Koinonia that we're getting that body, we're discerning the body properly there. On the other hand, if you notice what Paul says there in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I guess it's 11, where he he says, um, he, he says, eat at home, right? He says, eat at home. So yeah. he's kind of saying, hey, have your meal at home. There's something else we're doing together. Yeah. So that, you're that showing kind up of, just for the food. <laughs> yeah, if you're showing up just for the food or if you're gonna you know, show your, your wealth by coming and doing the food thing and, and the lavishness and whatever. But so there's some aspect of that meal that was more primary that Paul was focusing in on. But, you know, that's for another. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah, finish with these final comments. So Casey says, um, checking our hearts, uh, need to need the reminders to be open to reason and quick to listen. Amen. And then, um, and then Arnold says, we need these reminders. I forget to practice it often. And J uh, Jason is a good help to remind us. <laughs> in this uh, my just, brother. <laughs> uh, yeah and 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 he is a good brother and and look it's it's the the case for all of us i think we can all get kind of that tunnel vision and sure. focus in on our issues the things we're concerned about be around people who generally agree with us that's i yeah. think true for all of us because we hang out with people who agree with us yeah. and uh, and then forget that the body of christ both i would say historically and globally is so much larger, so much oh, yeah. more diverse. And one of my favorite yeah. passages in scripture is this view that we get of heaven where everybody is 
worshiping God from different tribes and tongues in their own languages. And when you see this beautiful diversity there um, yeah. that I think we ought to practice in the here and now to the best of our abilities. Yeah. Amen. So Jason, I want to thank you for taking this time and, and jumping on in here and having this discussion, brother. I'm just glad it wasn't during the actual world cup games, Arthur, this time. So I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> uh, for those watching, Jason and I bo both are uh, soccer. Um, I don't want to say fanatics. Uh, connoisseurs <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh, the, the older i'm getting the more i'm becoming a connoisseur rather than like a fan i just i'm just enjoying the different styles and all the stuff that happens oh, yeah today there were some shocks in the, in the world cup yeah and we will see how it goes forth but um bless you and your ministry um thank, thank you so you. much i think uh, as folks have watched this and then will watch it they will be uh greatly blessed is there some stuff that you've produced that people can listen to watch uh, read. Um. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to, <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to buy, buy this book here uh, since it's like $125 or so, but that was my, my monograph came out earlier this year, which was my dissertation turned into a book. Uh, but other than that, I do have a, a website magnifychrist.org. Uh, I'm not as active as I'd like on there, but they could uh, check out that website. And then also uh, uh, one of my elders at the church and I, we do a podcast together every other week called the Rod and Staff Podcast, the Rod and Staff Podcast. So you could check that out. We have some conversations like this. And we'll drop the links to those in the description box for anybody who's interested and, and can go check that out. Cool. So thank you, Jason. Appreciate Thanks, it uh, quite a bit. So ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our conversation this Thursday. I will be back tomorrow with a live Q&A at 12 p.m. Uh, West Coast time. And uh, with without anything else to be said, God bless you guys. And I will see you guys tomorrow.